Now, we have had some incredibly special episodes of Nonfic Pod recently. I mean, there was our summer special where we went down to Brighton and we met up with B. That was amazing. But this one is very, very dear to my heart. That's because it's one of the very first episodes we ever recorded back in the day when Georgie and I were trying to work out what Nonfic Pod could be. As two dedicated non-fiction authors who love the art form, we bonded over wanting to get the word out about great non-fiction. And one of the great non-fiction books that I read in the last year is Georgie's, We Swim to the Shark. Um, as I mentioned in the interview, you know, I, I honestly thought I was the only person that used diving as a way of dealing with uh, or improving my mental health. And Georgie writes so incredibly candidly and phenomenally engagingly that I just couldn't wait to interview her. So, hello Georgie, how do you feel about the fact that we're about to finally, after so many months, release this recording into the world? It feels very strange, because I don't know about you, but I I feel like at different times since the book came out, I've wanted to focus on different things. And right now I have no idea what I would want to focus on. And I also can't remember what we, we talked about exactly. It was so long ago. So I'm intrigued to hear it again. And I also, I was like, oh, you want to interview me? And that felt a bit strange, but also, fuck it. Yeah. Let, yeah. 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 I'm up for that. Yeah. Get my voice out there. Why not? And I think that's, one of the things we've realised, or certainly that I've realised as we've been doing this series, is so many of our authors feel that way. It's so odd. I don't know whether it's the solitary training of writing or whether it's because writing uh, attracts people who are comfortable with solitude. But the idea of going and putting yourself out there does feel very uncomfortable. I feel much happier as an interviewer than an interviewee, it has to be said. Mm. Mm. Um, it's like what, what what me this whole thing so yeah I think it, it helps us as interviewers to to be able to take that perspective of being interviewed and how uh how incredibly self-conscious that can make one hmm. yeah. indeed I hope I did an all right job but we shall see you did a marvelous job and I learned so much about memoir so here it is the very first episode of non-fic pod but then we got so excited about all our other guests that Georgie kept very gamely standing aside and letting them go first she's been holding the door now for I think about five months so finally here is Georgie Cod speaking about We Swim to the Shark Georgie Codd has worked behind the scenes at a funeral parlour, taught English in a Himalayan nunnery, edited publications for the Tibetan government in exile, and shadowed drug dealers in Florida City. The winner of the Seth Donaldson bursary with an MA in prose writing from the University of East Anglia, Georgie's first book is We Swim to the Shark. Described by the Times Literary Supplement as an almost spiritual mission, We Swim to the Shark blends memoir, reportage, nature writing and insights into mental health. Welcome, Georgie. Thank you. <laughs> so glad to have you. Um, 
listen, I loved We Swim to the Shark. Until I read it, I genuinely thought I was the only person who used diving as a way of taking care of my mental health. But you managed to really deftly interweave things like your own experiences with CBT or others who are diving to manage PTSD. How common do you think this is? Once I opened the door and started talking to people, I found that loads and loads and loads of divers are doing it for mental health reasons. Um, It wasn't until quite a way into my explorations and interviews and adventures that I found um, a diver called Dean who who's in the book and he he'd been in Afghanistan in a medical emergency response team so one of those awful situations where you're the first on the scene and you see all the things and things that you cannot unsee and he'd had extremely bad um, PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder and nothing 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 seemed to be helping until a friend kind of I think it was an old instructor actually said, get back in the pool, put your kit on. Not in that order, obviously, because, you know, it's easier to put your kit on (laughs) out of the pool. Um, But yeah, get in there, breathe, just breathe under the water. And it's, it's kind of, it's so meditative. I, well, it can be so meditative, I think, diving. It can also be frightening in many, many ways. But generally speaking, if your dive's going well, or if you're in a nice place, if you trust your buddy, you can kind of just let yourself go. So, well, my relationship with diving started from a place of terror um, in that I I, could, I was afraid of fish. Um, and, and by afraid, I mean phobic. And by phobic, I mean having ridiculous dreams about um, like great white sharks busting into my mom's dining room um, and things like that. So, so, I approached diving thinking, let's do a real life immersion therapy. <laughs> um, but no, it, to, to kind of, I think the, the the thing, one thing that causes fear, or like maybe the thing that causes all fear is the unknown. And part of the problem with being afraid of fish or what's under the water is you cannot see them when you're on the surface, really. You can't see what you're dealing with. You can't see what's around you. And that's, then your brain goes into panic mode. So I found diving quite meditative eventually once I'd got over my um, nerves and felt more confident. And and I think it's it's the deprivation of certain senses or the muting of certain senses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like being swaddled almost. You're kind of swaddled by the sea, which I suppose that probably takes us back to the womb somehow subconsciously. The dive mask kind of gives you blinkers a bit like a horse. So it, it really focuses your vision. You can just look straight ahead really. And then really noticing your breathing and kind of getting entranced by your own breathing and being able to control your movements up and down. Oh, it's quite fun, isn't it? It's quite, you can be quite playful, you know. One of the things I I like about diving is I can tend to get quite frantic Whereas diving really rewards slowing down. The the way that you play with the pace of your prose in the book reminded me very much of the way that you have to change the pace of your thinking as you're diving. So a lot of your land-based sections are chasing after a jeep that has left early or trying to get on a boat that unfortunately you've missed because of the fucking Canadian. Um, I'm so mad at the Canadian. Sorry, you'll have to read the book for the Canadian. It's Was that a deliberate choice in your writing or is, is is that just very reflective of the way that things are for you? 
Yeah, I actually, I can't remember if it was deliberate or not now. It's funny, isn't it, with publishing that you you kind of write the book maybe two, three or four years before it comes out. And then you talk about it and you're like, oh yeah, that happened. And I wrote that. Um, I I think it probably was deliberate. I'm going to say, I'm going to claim that. Yeah, it was deliberate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stylistic. Th- thanks. I'm so glad you noticed. But also, yes, that is how I feel on land, uh, as you've referred to for yourself often very frenetic, frenzied. There's too much to do. There's people to see. Oh my God. Um, a Canadian is, um, doing naughty things with a lady right next to my bunk bed, etc. But in the water, you don't get all these really bloody annoying humans. Generally. Mm, yes. <laughs> I mean, generally some dive spots that, that are massively overcrowded. Um, but you know, you can escape your humanness mm-hmm. and you can take time to be, just yeah. float or not float, glide. I like your mm. idea of flying. It certainly is. I really like flying. So you talked earlier about the sensory, if not deprivation, then then the focusing down, the narrowing down of the senses, uh, being able to see just through your mask, uh, the attenuation of sound, the way that you feel swaddled, which then I don't know about for you, but for me, it sort of opens up noticing things outside myself and you mentioned the fact that the the ocean works on you like the total perspective vortex in the Doug Adams books can you for anyone who isn't familiar with Doug Adams or the total perspective vortex or indeed what it is like to suddenly realize there are thousands of miles of ocean in front of you that you can see uh can you tell us a bit about that yeah so so that's from um Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and there's a a character or a side character you know how Douglas Adams just kind of introduces random people for a joke here and there um and there's this kind of an infinity machine type thing the the machine gives whoever steps in it the chance to see themselves in relation to the universe so they get to see how infinitesimally pointlessly tinyly minuscule and irrelevant they are um, and it sends everybody mad who who goes in there and so I sometimes found myself veering towards those kinds of thoughts when I was in the ocean when I wasn't and and but only for brief moments because you're drilled so much to do certain things at certain times and keep your eye on certain things so you can't you can't let your thoughts go away they they you just can't you're you're too used to checking your depth or your air pressure or whatever i was in uh one of the dives i did looking for sharks because that was the big um mission of my, mm-hmm. all, all my book to try and swim with the biggest fish in the world which is a, which is a whale shark and try to, well, basically say, I've nailed this. I'm no longer afraid of fish because I just swam with the biggest fish in the world, motherfucker. Anyway, um, on the way looking for these enormous, enormous fish, I would sometimes find myself faced by a wall of ocean that would be, you know, I knew that there was nothing between me and like 400 miles between me and the next point of land. And what's in that 400 miles? And how deep does it go? And there, there are so many things we still don't know about the oceans. We're only just, like, this is a golden age of ocean exploration that we're living through at the moment. With um, just in the last few years, the volume of things we're finding. And unfortunately, a lot of these discoveries are paired with the fact that the oceans are being opened up so people can start drilling and using precious resources from the ocean floor. It just gets your imagination. It got my imagination, certainly going, whirring. But then, oh, hang on, now I've got to check the time. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, how much air left? <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm yeah. going to die. No, okay, fine. Keep thinking about it. Okay. Is that my buddy or someone else in black neoprene with a yellow tank? Uh, for anyone who's not been underwater, mm-hmm. the hilarious game of, oh shit, which of these people was I meant to be following? Um, oh, I saw God. in the book as well, you had one of those moments as well. Yeah, I was actually, this isn't in the book, but when I, I'm, I spoke to lots and lots of dive instructors um, and um, other people who are really expert, experienced, done it loads and loads of years, divers. And uh, one of them was telling me about how he and a, a, a friend had gone a very ambitious dive that they were had practiced for for a very long time. And I think they were going down to 100 metres. So extremely dangerous, high pressure, any mistake you can make down there could finish you off or your buddy or whatever. Um, And uh, they were doing this, I think it was in Egypt, and they got followed by two first time um, tourist divers who thought that they were in in their group. So these two, these two guys who'd been practicing, yeah, they were kind of descending and descending and descending and suddenly like, oh my, no, we're being followed. Holy crap. Um, I'm pretty sure they had to abort the dive. Oh, I, mm. oh yeah. But that makes you wonder. It's very easy to get a bit disorientated. Can I say yeah. discombobulated? I love that. Discombobulated. Word. Yeah. Knocked. Yeah. Knocked. Yes. Tell us about being knocked. Yeah. How, did you get knocked? I didn't notice in the book you getting knocked. No, I didn't get knocked. So so lots of people probably hear that word and think, oh, knocked off, like I'm a bit pissed off or whatever. But in um, diving terms, it's, it's like shorthand for ni- nitrogen narcosis, which is a... And it's sometimes called the martini effect. I yes, believe. because it feels quite a lot like being drunk. Um, and it happens at around about depths of 30 metres or more. And um, many divers will experience it. But a bit like altitude sickness, it doesn't always happen at certain depths. And it might happen one day and not another. And when people are still kind of not sure why they might get nitrogen narcosis one time and not another. Um, I didn't get it in my dives in the book. Um, but when it does strike, it can be extremely dangerous. All you need if you've got nitrogen narcosis and you realize, oh, I feel like I've just drunk several martinis, you just kind of rise, as you well know, I'm sure, but you just rise yourself up and the effect kind of your 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 blood processes the extra excess nitrogen and gets rid of it and you you're kind of good to go. Um but if you don't heed the warnings um that your body is giving you, people will do things like give their breather to passing fish forget they're even diving um, and or just keep going down that's something that happens now I don't know about you Georgie but I I am an introvert who can fake extroversion when needed and there is something yeah about being on a dive boat you mentioned the emotional contagion on a dive boat of where people are feeling optimistic and looking forward and they're calm um that you wind up essentially reinforcing that that set of feelings for each other or if someone's starting to freak out that can run through the boat very quickly but when it comes down to being underwater you are predominantly dependent on one other human as someone who grew up to be phenomenally self-reliant um and again i feel like i'm talking to someone who knows what this is like how is that trusting a buddy particularly when it's somebody that you've just been paired with I think it's very different when you're learning because when you're learning, everyone is basically better than you. So you can be paired with your buddy and you you don't even think about it. This is a trained person. They know what they're doing. Um, But the more dives I've done, sometimes it's terrifying. Actually, you get down there and you think this person doesn't 
know what they're doing. And I don't, I'm not an expert and I know they're not doing this properly. I haven't ever actually been diving with just a buddy. The only dives I've ever done are with people who are um, teachers, essentially. Mm-hmm. I always defer to them. But yes, I, I went diving. I was concerned. My buddy, who was a, a trained teacher, was getting very close to me at times. I didn't seem to be able to control his buoyancy and his kind of veering around a bit. And I thought, the thing with buddies is they are your lifeline. If anything happens to you, as you know, your your breathing apparatus might come out. Your buddy has a spare kind of access point to their own breathing apparatus. So they would shove it in your mouth, ideally, and then take you both up to the surface. If they're not paying attention, if they don't really know what they're doing, if they panic, sometimes if they disappear, because lots, some there's quite a few tales of people who've had diving buddies and one buddy has just gone AWOL. You're on your own under a very heavy amount of water and it's risky, at which point you obviously go to the surface as soon as you safely can. Your life on land during that time was pretty fucking hectic wasn't it so you went through a breakup after a very long period of a relationship and your very very beloved grandma granny cod died Mm. um the writing of those sections how does it feel to be i'm not a memoirist how does it feel to bring the candor of something that is so emotionally raw in terms of grief versus the candor of bringing things that are emotionally raw in terms of sort of fear or phobia is the one that's easier to write about than the other? I, I found it all very cathartic, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found a lot of, I've heard, I've received a lot of kind of sympathetic responses through some of the darker episodes that are in the book and it's it feels very it's it feels like a real relief to have got that out on the page in a way that some people at least really relate to and and to kind of make connections with people through that and it kind of reflects back on me that you know I'm not the only one that awful things have happened to, which is obviously a stupid statement. Of course, I'm not the only one awful things have happened to. Awful things, unfortunately, are happening all the time. But I don't know, you can feel very lonely when stuff like that's going on, can't you? And instead of looking at the other people who've also lost people or have also gone through a breakup or whatever, you see everybody who's in their happy family mode and they're, you know, they're so, they're wonderful partners and and it's just, yeah, it's so isolating. But no, I, I found it really rewarding while I was writing and afterwards. And also I found while I was writing that the process of noting it down made me understand my actions much better. Um, I was like, oh, because, you know, when you're writing fiction, like, what's this character's motivation? Why are they going there? What, what, what's, what's even happening? Whereas in real life, I was just going there. I didn't think, Mm. why am I going there? But actually writing it down, I was like, oh, that's why I did that. Oh, interesting. So yes, I found it very helpful. Thank you so much, Georgie. You can find Georgie at Georgie Card. That's G-E-O-R-G-I-E. C-O-D-D dot co dot UK, georgiecard.co.uk. And of course, as my co-host on Nonfic Pod with Burn and Cod. Yay! Thank you so much for joining us.
Hello, you're listening to the free as you like, wonderful, mainstream, fantastico episode of Nonfic Pod with Burn and Cod. But there is something missing from this episode. It's a little segment called Shit I Wish I'd Known. And if you want to hear it, you need to sign up to our Patreon account. Be one of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash nonficpod. And for a small monthly donation, you can access each one of these fantastic little nuggets that will help you understand the authors better and understand the craft. That's patreon.com forward slash nonficpod. Thank you. So, Georgie, having listened to your interview, we now revert back into host mode. Yes. Welcome back onto this side of the the interviewing desk. We're going to turn our steely gaze, actually it's a very warm and loving gaze, isn't it, Mm. on the non-fiction books that we have been enjoying. Georgie, you said there's something you really want to talk about. Tell us about this book. There is, there is. And it's a book in the sense of not a book at all. It's a TV show. Because, so there were books I wanted to talk about as well, but this just overtook everything. I watched it on BBC iPlayer. It's called Collective. Have you heard of it, Bern? I do not believe I have. It, I just don't even know where to start with this documentary. Who are the collective of the title? Okay, so it's the film is set in Romania Mm -hmm. and based around a an awful fire in a nightclub where there was very ironically, I think it was a kind of heavy metal band who were actually singing about corruption and things at the time when this fire actually started. And there is some footage, I think I should warn anyone who's who listens to me talking about this and then wants to go and seek it out. There's some extremely disturbing footage um, quite near the beginning of the show, not show, of the documentary, showing the fire spread, taken on phones within the fire and many people died in the fire more tragically still a lot of people died after the fire of their injuries of the burns and it turns out that Romanian hospitals cannot cope with burns victims but were saying all along that they could somebody who's high up in the Romanian business circles and colluding it would seem with members of the government was actually selling disinfectants and antiseptics to hospitals that were severely diluted, so had absolutely no capacity to treat properly burns victims or, in fact, anyone else having serious operations or hospital stays. And so this does not sound like the most gripping documentary possibly to you right now, but it encompasses so much. You start with I'm not going to say everything that happens, obviously, because I'm very anti-spoiler. But you start with what happens in the nightclub. There's this mystery about why so many people dying after the nightclub. And then, I mean, it just gets so much worse. It's like watching The Wire, real Mm. life corruption. We follow different members of the 
we follow a newly inducted member of the health ministry who's basically parachuted in to cover up all the mess and make it look like the government actually gives a shit. And his struggles, we follow some of the people who have, who've lost sons or daughters in the fire. We follow people who are recovering from their burns, who experience the problems in the hospital. And I don't think any documentary I've seen recently has, or maybe even ever, has so directly and uncomplicatedly focus on what are the problems with power and money and what happens when money gets in the way of things like health and social care. And I finished the documentary feeling very frustrated and angry. So warning again, if you don't Mm. want to feel frustrated or angry, probably don't watch it. But also this is how so many places work, including I would hesitate to guess parts of the UK government and I think it's extremely important that we all be aware of how money is shaping the way we live our lives and yeah cannot recommend it highly enough collective it's um c-o-l-l-e-c-t-i-v as in I'm guessing the Romanian spelling right Oh my gosh. When the Grenfell documentary is finally made, uh, given the things that have been said in court so far about the, um, what's the parliamentary language for this? Uh, The the liberties that were taken by the cladding company with their fire safety measurements. Hmm. Again, that idea that this is something that is, you know, in a state like Romania. No, of course not. We also have these challenges here in this country where things are sold to the lowest possible bidder, there is a huge incentive to cut corners and the hope that you will get away with it long enough to make enough money that you're insulated from the consequences. Mm. When someone finally puts together that Grenfell story in that detail, following any kind of inquiry or perhaps even preempting an inquiry, given how long it's taking to address the problem. Mm. I think we'll see finally, oh God, somebody, somebody make that documentary. Somebody, I'm sure somebody already is, but Mm. yeah, as you say, that idea that this is specifically a Romania problem is, would be a a very comforting fairy tale to tell ourselves right now. Mm. Do you know the other thing that really reminds me or reminded me, or the other thing that it really got me thinking about was how, there's no fecking accountability. Mm-hmm. You can sit at the head of a company. It goes terribly wrong. And you go, yeah, it went terribly wrong. And you leave. Mm. Why is that allowed? Why yeah. don't Why don't people have to stay and say, okay, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I didn't mean for this to happen, but I'm going to sit with it. I'm going to say in it. I'm going to, I'm going to find out what's going on. What the fuck? I mm. hate Ah! yeah anyway sorry i need to calm down i remember my very first degree was was essentially in business and french and there was a thing about corporations i cannot remember who said it It was a wonderful phrase of uh no no body to kick and no soul to damn when an organization is able to say well organizationally you know lessons were learned lovely passive voice stuff um and people who did that have now moved on yeah, that idea that there is ever consequence or accountability is, it, it, again, it feels like a, a tissue paper thin fiction. Mm. Um, so yeah, 
collective. Uh, it sounds like it will spark a great deal of of fury and introspection. Um, and mm. yeah, read the details of the Grenfell inquiry so far because we have similar problems here. Mm. Yeah. Ah, <sighs> breathe. What have you been reading, Ben? Uh, something much, much lighter, uh, mm. brought to you by Judith Spellman, the mm. former organiser of the Sherborne Literary Festival. And uh, actually, I looked at her website. She is, she's done so many amazing things. She reminds me of you, actually, your, your, my intro <laughs> to you at the top of this episode, uh, at the top of the interview uh, about the amazing set of jobs that you had done. She, too, has done amazing things like being in a balloon race and uh, getting cast as an actor or whatever in order to write about these amazing things. Uh, but she ran the Sherborne Literary Festival for four years and she's written something called the Festival Organisers Bible. Hmm. Um, so the Festival Organisers Bible is a very clear no nonsense guide to how to run a festival um and it has uh it has answered so many of my questions because Georgie and I were talking about this off mic earlier but I am putting together a festival in fact I think it's fair to say Georgie and I are putting together a festival I would love to be on board. She's yes. on board. Yes. Um, you heard it here, people. Uh, Wild Words Festival, which will be in June next year at a gorgeous campsite just outside Potter's Bar. And it's going to be a celebration of all things spoken word, uh, written word. It's going to be family friendly, super accessible, BSL interpreters, uh, relaxed performances as standard, lots of accessible infrastructure, companion tickets for people who need them. Um, it's going to have the kind of diverse and exciting uh, programme of people that we've managed to bring you in non-fic pod, but not just non-fiction. Fiction, poetry, comics writing, crime, romance, thrillers, literary fiction, science fiction. We, we want to bring it all to you. And an amazing all-ages programme as well. A separate uh, tent that particularly caters to sort of 5 to 12-year-olds who can go and see uh, sort of kids' theatre or take part in their own drama lessons. And also, like I said, with things like comic books and game writing, stuff that older kids would be interested in, and just an amazing festival vibe with camping and sort of farmer's market-style food and a pop-up art gallery with local printmakers and huge games of Connect Four and Jenga. I Basically, I have this very strong vision in my head of a field full of very happy families playing Connect Four in the light, sparkly June sprinkles. Uh, apparently, June <laughs> is less of a rainy month normally than July and August, which I did oh. not know. Oh, um, yeah, uh, arriving by public transport in many cases because it's actually surprisingly accessible for someone that feels so wild. Oh, so yeah. yeah, so Judith's book. Um, at first, I was like, should I start with a big bang? I was like, no, start small and build up. So there is only going to be space for 500 people at this festival in this first year um which i i suspect there are going to be a bunch of people who who will be quite miffed with me because they missed out on the first year but I, we will grow over the years uh she talks about you know diversity of programming and how to achieve that how to make really strong partnerships with local groups and local people and it was just incredibly inspiring and it was a book that just it was very no nonsense um and it just made me think that's how you do it well 
So Wild Words Festival, wildwordsfest.com, if you want to sign up for for email updates, is basically in the programming stage. Um, If there is something that you would love to see that you've always thought, I'd love to have seen this at a literary festival, but I've not been able to get there because either it's too far, it's too expensive, it's too inaccessible, I couldn't find someone to take care of my kids, or if you want to be on the bill, let us know. Um, tweet us at nonficpod, uh, email um, info at wildwordsfest.com, uh, get in touch with us via the website or the Wild Words Fest Twitter. Just let us know what you would like to see um, because I cannot wait. I was at the site yesterday and even in the driving rain. Uh, It was being set up for a festival for the Zimbabwean diaspora, Zimfest, that happens every year. And it just looked beautiful. And it was getting ready to welcome thousands of smiling, happy families. And I cannot wait till we grow big enough to welcome you in your thousands. But the first year, it's going to be just 500 of you. And it's going to be amazing. Yes, can't wait. And no wankers allowed. Oh, that, that, you know, but no wankers listen to this podcast, so that's fine. I feel very safe publicising this podcast to this audience because you, dear listener, are not a wanker. We know that. Um, Yeah, our kids' tent is, or kids and young people tent, family tent is going to be amazing. Um, We just have found so many fantastic kids authors in the fiction and non-fiction space, amazing entertainers, people who run... uh, sort of courses and workshops for kids to get confident with using the spoken and written words. So if you've always wanted to bring your kids to a festival, get that festival vibe of, you know, wearing wellies, waking up in your tent, cleaning your teeth and pouring your mug of water onto the grass next to you, but you, you're you not quite up for a Glastow or even a Latitude and you want to do something that's a bit low key. Oh, and did I tell you about the intergenerational silent disco, oh. dear listeners? I told Georgie about this earlier I think we're all pretty happy. So three channels of music on headphones, 300 people in a field dancing to either dad rock, 90s classics or turn of the millennium, you know, school disco stuff and whatever the kids are listening to on TikTok at the moment. And you can pick your channel, you can move between the channels and you can dance with your family and everyone can have the own, their own tracks. And it's just, and I'm going to, there's going to be neon face paint. There's going to be a bubble machine. It, the, the night times are going to be brilliant but because there's no amplified music if you are coming with small kids you do not need to worry that we will be keeping the the very little ones up at night in fact you could even pop your baby in your sling and bop to some Beyonce guilt-free with your headphones on and then go back to your tent snuggle up and then wake up the next morning for some family yoga and then a gripping session on murder in uh, (laughs) literature so just if that sounds like your kind of thing bubbles neon face paint literature poetry comedy podcasts bacon sandwiches vegan sandwiches local breweries just follow world words fest because as you can tell we're a little Mm -hmm. excited Thank you so much again to everyone who supports Nonfic Pod by listening, rating, sharing, subscribing, and an extra special thanks to our Patreon backers who will be shouting out during these credits. Nonfic.
Traffic Pod is brought to you by Beatrice Bazell, Emma Byrne, Georgie Codd and Mike Wire. Our patrons are Marsha Biederman, Juliet Miller, Claire and Alexander, Nicola Myrams, Alexandra Coyne, David Corney and Mike Wire. Thank you all for your support. Amuses me to read it as beef caster. Casting <laughs> <laughs> my beef. Indeed. But not your queen. No. <laughs> <laughs>by rating, reviewing and sharing non-fic pod. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads.